I'm Heath Monsma. Hi, I'm Ella Von Beyer. And this is The Debriefed. Where we give you a rundown of everything that's been going on at Dartmouth this week and which has been reported on by The D. First up, I talked with arts writer Ryan Yim about the trend of serial killer and true crime media. Most recently, Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story which has received criticism for insensitivity and lack of consultation with victims and their families. Well, you mentioned in the article that they really only get traction when you focus on the killer themselves and you know, sort of investigations around um, it don't get as strong of coverage. Do you think it's a possible, there's a possible resolution there? Because you know, there are a lot of ethical concerns about these sorts of things. Right. I think part of it has to do with the mythology of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of these serial killers, they reach such a point of notoriety where they sort of transcend the crimes that they commit to become cultural icons. Mm -hmm. So in a lot of ways, as sort of cynical and possibly grim uh, view of the whole situation as I might have, um, I really feel like in terms of translating real events into entertainment, which is ultimately what these pieces are, sure. um, I feel like it's very difficult to grab people's attention when they're told to focus on something other than uh, what's sort of already known to them. Uh, and so then what do you think might be best for the victims? Really, I think it's it, what it comes down to is creating a dialogue with the victims themselves and their families. Um, Part of the, the big issue that I think came up uh, with how Dahmer dealt with the victim's stories is that there was virtually no involvement from the people that they were actually portraying. And then what was the sentiment of the victims? I think it was just too too realistic. It begs the question of, do you really need to show something that's already been shown once? Eric Perry specifically was more on the side of, um, this is re-traumatizing. And I think uh, Rita is- Isbell perspective was more um, maybe if the families were compensated in some way um, then it would feel like uh, the studios aren't just trying to capitalize on on trauma sure well because the important point too is this wasn't just the first time like this is this is a story no it is told, definitely told not the first time. time right yeah I was very surprised by the timing of the movies themselves like the first film that was made about Dahmer it was like maybe a couple of years, like, after his arrest. Mm-hmm. Just the frequency of it is just, it's really shocking, honestly. Next, I sat down with the D's opinion editor, Spencer Allen, to discuss the extension of the frat ban proposed in the editorial board's most recent edition of Verbum Ultimum. So the Dartmouth editorial board this week argued that, that the frat ban should be extended in general to the start of winter term, but this year in particular to the day after Halloween. What we're particularly concerned about this year um, is making sure that first years aren't faced with, you know, the end of the frat ban, Halloween weekend, and the end of homecoming weekend kind of all happening at the same time. So since um, the end of the frat ban is really the Monday of homecoming weekend, there's some thought that they, that more alumni are going to be around campus, and that could create a really dangerous age dynamic and power differential. So the biggest thing uh, that you're arguing is for safety uh, concerns, but you know, the 26s and the incoming class every year I think is generally pretty excited for the lifting of the frat band. What would you say to those kids? Yeah, our Dartmouth social life is really centered around Greek spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we all, you know, myself and everyone on the editorial board completely understands 
the want for the frat band to be over. At the same time, everyone on the editorial board has, has had their own experiences with the dangers of Greek life. Uh, and so we want to use our experience and leverage that um, to help campus as a whole. Sure. And then the alternative then to the frats would be these dorm parties, which you uh, delve into briefly. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the main reasons that you said they would be safer was that there are undergraduate advisors in every mm-hmm. dorm. Um, but if I may push back a little bit on that, I don't yeah. think a lot of undergraduate advisors are necessarily involved in that situation as much. Uh, yeah, so the UJ's role is, again, sort of to monitor these parties, but also be like build close relationships and do this peer to peer education so that if something bad happens, mm-hmm. the UGA can kind of trigger the some of the resources that the college has to help respond to the situation. So just tell me a little bit more about um, that point that I think is very interesting that the new members are going to be on door, they're going to be on the stairs, they're mm-hmm. going to be making sure that people don't go into these spaces, that they're not too drunk, and they have to monitor that. But what do you think the um, additional time to allow them to acclimate to the house will do for that? Some of the folks on the editorial board um, mentioned being kind of overwhelmed when they first joined their houses and then a couple weeks later had to, you know, learn how to do door, how to learn how to kind of monitor like complete strangers in their um, levels of intoxication Mm -hmm. um, to keep those individuals safe, but also keep the Greek, everyone um, who was in the house at that time safe and out of trouble. Um, So this extra sort of time will allow would allow folks to get acclimated in the new position of power that they have over who goes in and out of spaces, who has access to alcohol in spaces, um, and things like that, um, and kind of allow these new members to learn this with individuals who, you know, upperclassmen who theoretically should know, should have a better sense of their limits with alcohol, um, and kind of how to be safe in these Greek spaces and in these high pressure, high-danger situations. Following last week's announcement that free teletherapy would be provided to all Dartmouth students, reporter for the D, Matteo Curiel, went a little deeper and investigated how this came about and what teletherapy will mean for students across campus. So how confident do you feel like students are feeling about um, UL and these steps that the college has taken? They feel confident that this is something that'll help the student body. Yeah, I saw you You interviewed um, David Millman and Jessica Chiraboga for this, and it seems like the student government was actually a big like, driving force in instigating this. What was their sentiment um, about this new uh, implementation of free teletherapy? Yeah, so um, their sentiment, overall sentiment, was that this was, um, this was a good process to go, to, go through to advocate for these services because many of our our students here are still um, are still s- suffering from the tragic events that have that have happened recently. You also mentioned that uh, this process is about a year in the making, right? They've been uh, advocating for this for a while. It yeah. wasn't just um, because of the recent tragic events. Did you get a sense of the challenges that the student leaders went through in order to get this? To yeah, for sure. In interviewing um, both the president and vice president, I was able to get an idea of uh, of the timeline that this that this had happened in that this wasn't just in like an easy process that this was something that happened um, like you had said over an, over a year and that um, and that really talks it started since um, the fall of 2020 
I mean, this wasn't directly mentioned in your article, but what do you think this means more broadly for student advocacy and how willing the college is to respond to student advocacy? I think this really shows, <coughs> excuse me, the, the power of, of student advocacy um, because of how much students were involved in the process, that this was something that um, had input from students all throughout the process and was really uh, catalyzed and pushed through by students. And so by, by going through um, the adversity of, of having this long timeline of between the ideas coming up and it actually being put into motion, that it shows that like that the college is able to be receptive of these things. It just takes a lot of a lot of power um, from the student from student voices and a lot of um, a lot of perseverance. Really, any other important point that you think we've got to ask you about? I do hope that students are able to understand that the service is not just for people who have um, mental health issues or that are diagnosed with anything. Um, that is named. I think that these services can really help anyone regardless of, this, of their situation and that it's something that students can, can try out and see how they like it. And it's a teletherapy service, so it's online and it's easier to access than actually going in person and having those services. That's all the news we had for today, folks. Consider yourselves debriefed. Keep an eye out for our long-form episode on trips coming out later this week. And tune in every week for your weekly news rundown. Bye, guys. See ya. There are a few people we want to thank in the making of this podcast. Thank you to our amazing colleagues at the Dartmouth, Ryan Yim, Spencer Allen, and Matteo Curiel for amazing interviews. And to our producers, Abby Hughes, John Zavris, Ryan Petty, Jack Coleman, and Eliana Stanford. Last but not least, thanks to our executive editor, Lauren Adler.